This is Kat Klingensmith with Retro Crime Storytime. I have a reoccurring theme of the widows of Wheeling, West Virginia. At the turn of the century, it was a town of vice, so a lot of men would spend their money on liquor while their families went hungry. With alcohol comes a lot of domestic violence, and it was especially hard to get a divorce back then. If the police wouldn't help them, then there was another way. For better or worse, West Virginia has always had a lot of guns and a firm belief in the right to protect oneself. Instead of divorces, husbands got shot and wives made sure they did it in a way that they would be acquitted. I like the Widows of Wheeling. With all that said, this episode is about a woman in Wheeling who was almost a widow. She wasn't like the other women. Her behavior wasn't noble. Lila Zane was born in 1888 and came from a wealthy family who were not only the first settlers, but at one point, they owned the entire town of Wheeling. They have a history of heroism in the 1700s, but then it gets canceled out by fighting for the Confederacy in the 1800s. That's pretty low, considering that West Virginia broke off of Virginia to get away from the Confederacy. Hard to believe now, but West Virginia was a Union state. Lila grew up wealthy, wanting for nothing, and her relatives thought she was very weird. She went swimming with boys, woo, and she played with rats. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much to do in the early 1900s, I guess. Uh, at 18 years old, she was large and muscular, but considered pretty. I looked at photos, and, um, um, okay. <laughs> uh, Maybe West Virginia in 1907 had different standards of beauty. Maybe beauty was based on usefulness, like how well a person might handle an axe or build an outhouse. I'm not trying to be mean, but if you look at her, you'll think, oh, there's a girl who plays with rats. <laughs> Lila was one of those women who didn't have any women friends or gay men friends or anything. She didn't even have a guy friend who wanted to ever be platonic. Just someone who screams dad issues and personality disorder. That was her. She surrounded herself with boys she somehow wrapped around her finger. They found her intoxicating, and they thought that they were in love with her. Some personality disorders can be like that, though. The person can be super charming. They can use people and throw them away, then they'll blame the poor, heartbroken fool for getting rejected by them. Like 90% of you, oh, that's my ex. And then the other 10% are, oh, she's onto us. When Lila was 18, Charlie Cook fell madly in love with her. He moved to South Wheeling from the north side, which is about a five-minute drive, but back in 1907, it was another world, and he moved there to earn money for his poor mother, who worked as a laundress. His father had died in a work accident and left his wife with two kids to feed. Charlie was an excellent singer and piano player, and South Wheeling was where all the vaudeville action was at. When he met Lila, he forgot all about his family and spent all of his money on her. He played piano in saloons while Lila danced and performed on roller skates, like he played some Scott Joplin arrangement of Electric Avenue. <laughs> Charlie desperately wanted to marry her, but he couldn't scrape together enough money. Lila's family wouldn't give her a cent to marry him. So she found a new guy to make him jealous. Charles Bennett was a 16-year-old and traveling and selling elixirs to pay his way through college. So snake oil aside, he was an intelligent, hardworking boy who was also surprisingly an excellent performer, just like Charlie Cook. Within a day or two of meeting Lila, Charles also wanted to marry her. You know, it seems unfair that all these guys are falling for this woman who is, you know, large and sturdy when all the other women out there are passing out from tightening their whalebone corsets to make themselves tiny. 
Charles Bennett, he was actually from New Kensington, which is where my husband's mom's family settled after moving here from Syria. The Bennetts were on 5th Street, and my husband's Syrian ancestors lived on 4th Street. So if you ever get a chance to visit, don't. Especially not at night. That city did not age well. In September of 1907, Lila went for a soda with Charles and then spent the night with him in his hotel room, which was across the street from her place. She lived on the fairgrounds on Wheeling Island because her family owned them. It's where the casino is now. The next day, she told Charlie Cook that she went out with Charles because she didn't care about her life anymore because Charlie wouldn't marry her. He didn't want to be with her. Charlie assured her that he did. He just could not afford to marry her. Then she changed her story a bit and told Charlie that actually she went out for a soda with Charles and noticed that he had a large wad of money from selling his elixirs. Then he drugged her soda fountain drink, which I'm thinking was probably some kind of ice cream and pop float, and he brought her back to his hotel. So she's making out like she was taken advantage of. And told Charlie that if he wanted revenge and the money to marry her, then he could wait for her by the water on the fairgrounds, and she would lure Charles there on their date that night. So he allegedly is drugging her, and she's still, you know, hey, let's go on a date later, and is still up for a good time. Charlie Cook brought his friend Joe Wythe, and their plan was to beat Charles up and take his money. They waited that night, and sure enough, Lila brought Charles, and she also brought two revolvers, which I'm hoping were concealed, because I'd probably suddenly remember I had somewhere else to be if my date showed up with a gun holstered on each hip and said, hey, we're going for a walk. I don't think Charlie or Joe understood what she meant by the revolvers, because they turned the guns around and began pistol-whipping Charles instead. Or maybe they just didn't want to actually kill him. In Charlie's confession, he said that he and Joe never wanted to kill him, just beat him and rob him. It was Lila who wanted to kill him. Apparently their beating was taking too long for Lila, so she said, I'll fix him, and grabbed the gun and administered the final blow. They held him underwater until bubbles stopped coming up, and then pushed him out into the river. His body was found soon afterwards, about four miles south. Two days later, Lila and Charlie married and moved to Detroit. Charles' body had already been found and his sister had already identified him, and she told the police about Lila hanging out with her brother. Since Charles was robbed and Lila left town a couple days later, it looked suspicious. The police in Detroit were notified and questioned them, but Lila and Charlie spun enough yarn for police to feel satisfied, and instead, Charles' death was ruled officially a suicide. While in Detroit, Charlie didn't experience the matrimonial bliss he expected after marrying his dream girl. Lila was mean, and she was interested in other men. By March of 1908, they were back in Wheeling and living with their parents. Charlie was angry with how Lila treated him and felt awful for what he did to poor Charles. He told his mom, who encouraged him to tell the police what happened. I think she probably grew to regret that. Um, she didn't understand that people as poor as she was and people as rich as Lila's family don't always get the same trials. Charlie went to the police and told them everything. They quickly picked up Lila and Joe. When Lila saw Charlie, she ran over to him and hugged him while sobbing and asked what happened. He told her he confessed everything and suddenly her manner changed like a switch was flipped. She became furious and told him that she wished she had a gun to kill both him and herself. Lila ended up enjoying lockup. Um, <laughs> of course, I'm thinking of rats again. I'm like, oh, because they were best to play with. Um, but she enjoyed lockup. She ate and slept well and made tons of friends. She made a lot of friends primarily because a lot of women inside were spying on her and reporting anything incriminating. 
Layla was onto them a bit, so she wrote a fake confession, and one of the spies turned it over, and it went on about how evil Charlie was and how everything was his fault and how innocent of a victim she was. She underestimated the extent of the women spies there because she ended up confiding in a few new friends. The account she told them was far different from her confession that she wrote. Meanwhile, her wealthy family spared no expense to help her, and both she and her family were confident in her acquittal. Over the men's lockup, Joe and Charlie got along, but otherwise, Joe said nothing about the crime. His story was, I don't know anything about it. No amount of questioning or proof could make him change his story. I'm imagining them handing him an autographed copy of I Helped Killed Charles Bennett by Joe Wife, and he still would have said, yeah, I don't know anything. <laughs> the book is fake news. This is a witch hunt. I've never met my best friend, Charlie Cook. Certainly haven't met his wife, Lila, who I'm also madly in love with. If you haven't figured out by now, that's why Joe was also involved. Joe was in love with Lila, too. No one is that good of a friend. I have the greatest best friend in the world. And even after these 30 years of friendship, if she asked me to commit a felony for little or no profit, I'd politely decline. <laughs> if I asked that of her, I would hope she would not only decline, but also ask if I've been taking my medication. So, of course, it was about a girl. Joe was just as dumbstruck as the others. I'm not trying to be mean. That said, she looked like Edward Norton, and not in a good way. I'm not trying to shame her so much as help you understand how crazy it was for her to have this kind of power over men. Charlie Cook's trial was first, and it was a death penalty case. Lila tried her best to send him to the gallows under her family's influence. The press was extremely biased and called Lila his child bride. She was by no means his child bride. When they married, she was 19 and he was 16. West Virginia didn't start registering births for another 10 years, so it was easy to lie about one's age. She was 19 and he was 16. He was a minor. Her victim, also a minor, 16 years old. This is something the press did that I noticed. Instead of addressing her as Lila Cook or the standard Mrs. Charles Cook like they would have used for anyone else, they called her Lila Zane Cook. With the Zane comes a lot of power. Streets in Wheeling were named after the Zanes. There's a whole city in Ohio named after them, Zanesville. They had their own paper and everything. Um, then the papers also made sure to remind their readers that Lila was a descendant of Ebenezer Zane who founded Wheeling. And her foremother, Betty Zane, was a hero. I'm not sure how many people know about her. She was a post-revolutionary hero. She faced attack from Seneca and people still loyal to the British crown in order to bring Fort Henry and Wheeling ammunition from her home. Uh, good for her. I'm sure she's proud that her great-granddaughter grew to be a man-using promiscuous murderer who roller-skated and played with rats. I guess Lila was also brave as she faced the risk of babies and rabies. <laughs> The papers called Lila aristocratic, which doesn't make any sense if they're going to brag about her being descended from people who fought loyalists. With all this adversity, Charlie was found guilty of first-degree murder, but the jury recommended mercy on account of his age. Instead of death, he was given life in prison. At the time, he was the youngest person in the county given a life sentence. With him locked away, it was time for Lila's trial. Preemptively, the city of New Kensington got signatures from citizens, council, and the mayor attesting to the high character of Charles Bennett because it was easy to see what was coming. Sure enough, Lila said that Charles drugged her ice cream. For the sake of pleasing the public, she said that he was the utmost gentleman at the hotel he brought her to. So there's a mixed message. Uh, 
She claimed that the next evening they went for a walk and that she was madly in love with him and wanted to marry him. When they got near the water, she said, Charles asked her to sit down and she didn't want to, so he tried to force her to sit down. Out of nowhere, Charlie and his friend Joe came and beat up Charles. She said that Charlie was jealous and possessive and that Charlie made her hold his coat while he beat the boy up and then he threatened to kill Lila if she ever told. When he was done, she said they held her over a fence and told her that they would drop her if she didn't promise to keep her mouth shut. That was unlikely to happen. They were adolescents and she was a tall, full-grown woman. Then she claimed that Charlie stole Charles' money and she only married him two days later and moved with him to Detroit because she was so afraid of him. Yes, she was afraid of him, went to the courthouse with him, packed her stuff, and went to Detroit. Despite her family owning the town, she was a victim. By then, people were starting to catch on that she had planned, manipulated, and executed the whole thing. The defense switched over to the insanity defense. It went from, she comes from such a regal family, to, the women are nuts and it's hereditary. I couldn't find an abnormal amount of insanity in her family tree. I mean, we all have some. Uh, lots of kissing cousins, though. I don't give much credence anyway to a wealthy family's history of their women being lunatics, especially when the asylum was only a couple hours south. A husband could send his wife there for insubordination if he wanted all of her assets. Or if he could afford a servant and a cook and was sick of being asked to stop bringing home crabs from one of Wheeling's many brothels, he could have her put away for simply having a strong opinion, even if the opinion was, I don't like getting crabs from dirty brothels. The insanity defense was nonsense, and she was clearly lying. Her crocodile tears would flow, then suddenly disappear. Of course, she was acquitted. Then Joe White was acquitted, who never budged from his defense of, no idea what you're talking about. The idiot nearly friend-zoned himself into a death sentence. When Charlie found out about Lila's acquittal, he seemed genuinely happy for her. He said he wanted a divorce and nothing to do with her anymore and that he threw his life away for her, but he couldn't help it because he loved her so much. Charlie, you idiot. After Lila was acquitted, Charles Bennett's father asked to be the first person to sign the petition to pardon Charlie Cook. He felt that Charlie and Joe were victims of Lila's manipulation, just as his son was. He wasn't the only one. The more word spread about Lila being the puppet master, the angrier people got. Some jury members had to close their businesses and leave town because of the backlash. After the trial, Lila said that she wanted to go into show business. Instead, she went four hours away to Toledo, Ohio, and she remarried in 1914. Now, according to Charlie's enlistment papers, they were still married. That explains why she used her middle name, Rebecca, for her second marriage. The marriage license also said that this was her first marriage. So maybe her marriage to Charlie was annulled and he forgot? If she was a bigamist, I don't know how she got away with it because she married again in 1919, and this time to a different guy from Toledo. She used her real name for that marriage, but like on her last marriage license, she claimed again that she had never been married before. She probably also said that she was a virgin who had never murdered anyone before. Didn't the guy think it was odd that such a great catch hadn't been married by 30 years old yet? Like, that's normal now, but back then, she would have been considered a spinster. In any case, she must have made some character improvements or they were swingers and he was a masochist because they stayed married until she died at 83 and he died 12 years later at 93. As far as I know, she only had one child. In 1923, she gave birth to a boy she named Charles. Just like Charles Bennett, the boy she killed, and just like Charles Cook, the boy she falsely accused and sent away as a child to rot in prison for the rest of his life. 
If you can see a plausible way that this is virtuous and not diabolical, let me know. She and her husband lived in Toledo and then moved to Los Angeles. She died in Southern California in 1971, and I don't think her husband and son she's buried with knew the truth about her past. As far as Charlie Cook, he was given a full pardon 11 years later in 1919. Right away, he married a younger woman and started a family. They had four kids, and he never returned to performing. He lived the rest of his life in Wheeling and became a boring old steelworker. My father-in-law was a steelworker. It's a noble way to be out here. I hope Lila, or Beck as she was called, was able to become a good person, a good wife, and a good mother. In fact, I believe she did change. There's clearly something wrong with her because even Judas couldn't live with himself. Some personality disorders come along in adolescence that can improve and be alleviated by the time the person is 30. That would explain why her last marriage stuck. My younger sister had borderline personality disorder, and Lila's patterns look familiar. Like popular with boys, predominantly male friends, manipulative, loses interest in people fast, severe campaigns have projected, two different people, either the predator or the victim, selfish to the point of misery, dramatic, able to justify cruelty, and on and on and on and on. I can go on forever because I had to learn a lot about it in order to survive. Like Lila Zane, my sister is no longer with us, but unlike Lila Zane, my sister didn't improve with age. It got worse instead, and overdosed on pills, I know you were wondering. I always wonder with suicides too and get annoyed when families don't release details. Like, I'll respect your family's privacy during this time after my curiosity has been satisfied. I know I have gallows humor, but to my credit, I've never tried to send someone there. Thank you for listening, and I'm glad to have you to rehash history with me. <music>